Good morning. All right, grab your Bible. We need to hurry. If you've looked at that outline, um, <laughs> maybe I was a little overzealous. You know, it doesn't look that big on, on the computer when you're typing it, and then you see it in the bulletin and you say, I made a mistake. So uh, we'll just see what happens. We'll go for it. So grab your Bible. We're talking about the Lord's Supper today, so let me do a little bit of recap. Last week, we were doing a series on the means of grace. Now, it's not a common expression you hear regularly um, in church, especially in a Baptist world, uh, but the means of grace in a formal sense refers to the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the preaching of the Word. And so if you think about it like this, and this, I would encourage you to think about the means of grace, just like when you go to the gym, anybody start a new gym membership this year? Okay, one person, the rest of us did it at some other point in life and, and quit. Um, if you just go to the gym every morning, but do nothing when you're in there, you know, you're kind of wasting your time, right? There, there's a reason you go to the gym. You have to actually touch some weights. And not just touch them, but, but work it. Maybe one metric would be your heart rate should increase at some point while you were there. Then you know you're doing something beneficial. And we could say the same thing about the Christian life. We can jump through all sorts of hoops. We can do all sorts of things as Christian, but we've got to get the blood pumping in some way to, to grow in sanctification, to become more like Christ, to have a spiritual moment with Jesus. We, we sing songs about having this relationship with the Lord. I love the way Good Good Father starts taught us. I've, I've heard uh, many talking about what you're like, but then I heard that tender whisper in the, the dead, what, however it goes. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we have this moment with Jesus, and, and we try to think of ways, what are ways I can, can go to the gym, so to speak, and get my heart beating, get that, what's the thing I can accomplish that's meaningful, that produces genuine spiritual change? When we say means of grace, that's the answer to the question. What are the things we can do to actually make sure we're growing in the Lord? We can look at them objectively, things outside of us, and we can look at them subjectively, things inside of us. So the objective means of grace are just the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the preaching of the word. We see this clearly taught in Scripture. And then we'll, after that, we're going to study the subjective means of grace. So sometimes these are, instead of means of grace, these are called spiritual disciplines. So prayer, fasting, study, memorizing, meditation on the word. There's others. We'll, we'll look at those for a few weeks. So we're just studying what are the objective things I can do and foster growth as a believer. And a lot of times you pick up a spiritual disciplines book, they skip the objective disciplines and jump straight into prayer and reading the Bible, well, we want to spend some time emphasizing what we do as the gathered body. So the subjective disciplines are things we have a tendency to do mostly alone and private. The objective disciplines are things we almost exclusively do as a group. We sit down for the sermon. We come together for baptism. In fact, the church would discourage someone from going to get baptized privately because it's a corporate work that we all want to see. It's your entrance into the body of Christ, and we take communion. There's even a direct commandment in Scripture that we wait for one another so that we all do it together at the same time in the same room. There's a corporate nature to all of those. So last week, we just introduced the idea of communion, I mean, the idea of means of grace. Today, we're going to dive into specifically the Lord's Supper, what we just did. So historically, there's a few other names given to this. Lord's Supper is a direct name in Scripture. We'll see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, today it is called the Lord's Supper in Scripture. But in history, it's also been called communion. We'll often use that word. And another word you'll hear regularly, especially from more of a Catholic background, is Eucharist. And so we're talking about the same thing. 
Historically, there's been a big debate about the Lord's Supper. So if you know anything about church tradition, you know anything about the Reformation in particular, you're probably familiar with at least the idea of this debate. And let's learn a really big word. If we all want to say a big word and sound smart today, we can say transubstantiation. Anybody trying? I got a few. All right, there you go. We don't believe in that term, so you can forget that word. All right. So during the time of the Reformation, there was a belief system that, that has very false in a lot of different ways. We're not going to get into all the particulars of that argument because it's not really the, the debate that's before us, but we should at least be aware of this. The question they were asking 500 years ago was what was happening kind of metaphysically when we take the Lord's Supper together. If this is, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ, well, I mean, Jesus says this is his body, this is his flesh. If we take him literally then some way that bread turns into flesh. In some way that blood turns into Jesus' actual, physical, literal blood. Now, if you look at it under a microscope, it seems to still look the same, but the, the theology behind it is this literally becomes Jesus' body and blood. His presence is with us in a very real, physical way such that you could say you were eating the flesh of Jesus. Jesus made a very difficult saying in the gospels like you want to be part of this you got to eat my body and so this is how it was interpreted and and for a long time that this is literally transformed so it transubstance the substance transforms transubstantiates into something else well during the time of the reformation there was maybe a recognition that that doesn't feel exactly right so martin luther interpreted it a little bit differently, and he didn't coin the phrase, later interpreters coined the phrase, that it's consubstantiation, that the literal body of Jesus is kind of here somewhere, can't see it, but there's some sense in which the literal body and literal blood of Jesus is physically present in communion. Can't see it anywhere, so it's just here with us. So instead of transform, it was con, which in Latin is just with, with us, so consubstantiation, the substance of Christ's body is with us. Well, later reformers, more of the tradition where Baptists come from and, and many of the, the Protestant traditions you're probably familiar with, end up in some sort of either spiritual presence of Christ or absolutely nothing. There, there's nothing here whatsoever. It's just a memorial that we take that symbolizes a spiritual reality. That would be one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum would be there's some sort of spiritual presence of Christ. And, and I would say the right answer leans in that direction, somewhere between memorial and Jesus being with us. But to really answer that question, we've got to do a lot of homework. So we're going to do that homework together this morning. So grab your Bible and uh, let's dive in. We're going to start in the Old Testament. So let's look at the background of the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament, there is no Lord's Supper. So we have to see where this comes from. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus is a very interesting book, and if you've read, ever started a new reading plan in the Bible, people usually start at Genesis, and they make it halfway through Exodus before they quit. Now, halfway through Exodus is usually the quitting point because you, get, you finish the narrative, the story portion, and then you get laws. Here's the physical dimensions of the tabernacle. Here is how you will make the curtain. Here is how you make the, the, the clothing that the priest will wear. And people have a tendency to get to that point and go, mm, let me skip forward to some more narrative, and let's skip the rest of the Torah and pick up maybe with Joshua. Well, 
right before we get into that spot, it's kind of the beginning of that, we're at the last plague of the ten plagues of Egypt, it's going to be the final plague, and Moses has given commandments from the Lord and how to deal with the final plague. So just a quick reminder, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, God has sent Moses to deliver them, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh, let the people go. And each time he says, let the people go, Pharaoh is going to respond with no, and then there's a plague. We've had nine plagues so far. Now we're at the tenth and final plague. Moses is going to say, let the people go. Pharaoh is going to say no, and this is the plague that will happen. And the final plague is simply going to be that the Lord comes through the camp and kills the firstborn in every household. Whether you're Jewish or Egyptian did not matter. And we all know that there was a way for the Jews to be, what, passed over. What do we call the name of this feast? The Passover feast. That's what it means. So let's just, real quickly, let's read through what Moses is told by the Lord to say in Exodus chapter 12. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. So what happens immediately after the Passover in the story? God kills the firstborns, and what does Pharaoh say now? Leave. So they leave. This marks day one of their freedom. Consequently, it's going to be the beginning of their calendar. So they don't start in January. They start at what we would call Easter time. So this is the beginning of the month, beginning of the year for them. This shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he is good with his nearest neighbor, shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So every household gets a lamb. And when we say lamb here, we mean your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. I went like 20 years before I ever noticed the goats. A goat qualifies here. Either a lamb or a goat. You can do either, but it has to be a male, a year old, without blemish, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So on the 14th day at twilight, you kill the lamb. Here's what you do with the lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentils of the house in which they eat it. So where do they put the blood? It's smeared over the doorway. So you can't enter the house without passing under the blood. So when the angel of the Lord comes to the camp, he's going to see the blood on the house and then pass over that house. That's the, the symbolism happening here. They shall, But here's what you have to do with the body. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted, on the fire. And we're going to see roasted. It can't be raw and it cannot be boiled. You don't want to eat boiled meat anyway. It's terrible. So roasted meat. Sorry, maybe my opinion is getting there. All right, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So that word unleavened is going to be key. What does unleavened bread look like? It's flat. It's a cracker. Now, why do you think that's the point here? Why unleavened bread? Well, the, the ideology is very simple. They're going to, in the morning, have to leave. How quickly are they going to have to leave? Immediately. So it's just reinforcing the idea that we don't have time to let the bread rise. You ever done bread the traditional way? Oh, 
going to give me, oh, man. I can't, I don't care what kind of diet I want. If I come to your house and there's fresh homemade bread, I'm gone. No willpower whatsoever. It's over. All right, but you can't do that during the Lord's Supper, or sorry, during Passover, because they're symbolizing this, we're going to do it in a hurry. All right, verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. So thank God for the New Testament. And you shall let none of it remain, hear that, none of it remain until the morning. So what's the idea? What do you eat? Eat the whole thing. You eat this whole thing, and if anything does remain until the morning, you shall burn it. This has to all be eaten one way or another before morning. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So there's biblical precedent here for eating quickly. You're supposed to eat it fast with your staff, and it's all symbolism of we're going to have to leave in a hurry. Not even allowed to leave the house. You have to do this. It's the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So there's a judgment in this Passover against sin and against the symbolic heads of sin, which would be the gods of Egypt, the the deities, the false idols that are being worshipped. God is executing judgment over them. It says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, for the next couple of paragraphs, he just says, this is going to be a regular observance. The actual Passover happened once, but then they celebrate the Passover every year. So if we follow through the rest of chapter 12, it actually happens. And let's just read the institution of the Passover at the end. So jump down to verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Now, circumcision then was the symbol of what in the Old Testament? That's how you came into the covenant. So you could not have the Passover unless you were properly Jewish. So, but every, we read that. Verse 45, no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. So in other words, you can only have it if you're Jewish. And if you're not Jewish and you want to have it, you have to become Jewish to have it, and then you're counted as a native. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as Aaron Um, As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, on the very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So that is the Old Testament basis for what we do in the New Testament in celebrating the Lord's Supper. So they are not the same, but that is the ground for the New Testament Lord's Supper. The Passover is technically still a very different thing than the Lord's Supper, but it does carry over in its symbolism. So let's fill in several blanks. And so we'll make our way through this. Number one, the Lord's Supper is grounded in the Passover celebration 
of the Exodus. This is where it comes from. It's built out of that. That is the ground. We call it the foundation. And then we're going to build on that ground when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. The Passover meal emphasized God's provision and deliverance. So he's leading them out of Egypt. He's redeeming them from slavery. But they do nothing to earn that. God gives this to them. He gives them this means of salvation through the sacrificial lamb. It is God's work, and it emphasizes God's provision and deliverance. And then last, the Passover was a major festival of Old Testament culture. It's a big deal. In the Old Testament, the Passover is perhaps the most celebrated of the feasts. There's many other feasts, but the Passover is a really big deal. That's the Old Testament scenario. So now let's move to the New Testament. I want you to turn to Matthew 26. So we're going to the New Testament. And Matthew in the New Testament, it does transition us from the old to the new. But not only does it transition us in terms of its location, but theologically Matthew's gospel is designed to transition us from the old covenant to the new covenant. So quick word on covenant. We call our Bible Old Testament, New Testament. Testament is covenant, same word. So an old covenant and a new covenant. So the old covenant, we could say, is a covenant God made with Moses. But really, we would throw most of the covenants of the Old Testament into that category of the Old Covenant singular, and then the New Covenant at the beginning of what we call the New Testament. So let's read Matthew 26, um, verse 26. Matthew 26, 26 says, Now as they were eating, now what were they eating? Do you know? The Passover meal. They had come together to have the Passover. And it says this literally in Luke's version of the story. They've come together, they've had the Passover. Now, as they're eating the Passover, Jesus took bread. Now, what kind of bread would it be if it's the Passover meal? Unleavened. In fact, leavened bread in the house would get you excommunicated. It was a big deal that it was unleavened, had to be a lamb, had to have this wine, you had to have all these pieces for it to count as the Lord's Supper. They would prepare for it in advance. So they're having the Passover meal together. Then Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, I'm not a literalist when it comes to this verse. I don't think Jesus is in any way saying that that literal bread is literally his body. I think this is a very clear example of him being metaphorical, using a simile. He's just saying, this symbolizes what's going to happen to me tomorrow. So this is Thursday night of Passion Week. What happens on Friday of Passion Week? It's crucifixion. He's just symbolizing what's about to happen. So says, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink all of it. I mean, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Emphasize their covenant. Now, some manuscripts add the word new, in that, just to make sure we're clear, but we don't need it here because we read it in Luke's gospel. It's the exact same narrative in Luke's gospel. You don't have to go there now, but it's in Luke 22, 14 and following. He literally calls it the new covenant. Now, that is significant to us. Let's fill in a few blanks and it makes sense of that. So, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the end of his last Passover meal with his disciples. So, he had a Passover meal and then he instituted the Lord's Supper at the end. Now, what do we call the first Lord's Supper? The last supper. Isn't that funny? <laughs> the first Lord's Supper is called the last supper. Why is it the last supper? 
because he's going to be crucified. It is his last supper with the disciples. We call it, however, the Lord's Supper. So he institutes it at the end of the Passover meal. Now, next, before we fill in the next blank, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Great Old Testament passage. And it's important to note that this passage is in the Old Testament. And let's read what it says. Jeremiah 31. I'm going to pick up in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So which part of your Bible is that talking about? The New Testament. Exactly. So we had an Old Testament. Jeremiah's writing during the Old Testament saying a new covenant, a new testament is coming. That's going to happen. This is God's prophecy through Jeremiah. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Well, what does that remind you? The day he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What Old Testament festival is that? Not like the Passover. I'm going to make a new covenant. Not like the Passover. Now, ultimately, it's going to be the covenant of Sinai made with the people of Israel when they received the Ten Commandments. But not like that day of Passover. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So this coming New Testament is going to allow everyone to stand level in relation to the Lord. Direct fellowship with God, not mediated through a priest, but mediated through God, which is Jesus Christ, His Son. And it will deal with sin. And what way will it deal with sin? Sin will be no more. Jesus has the last Passover with His disciples. He pours the juice out, the wine, and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. What's He talking about? The prophecy of Jeremiah 31. He's saying, as plain as day to those people present, The new covenant is happening. My blood is going to institute the new covenant. So next blanks. The Lord's Supper connected the death of Jesus with the prophesied New Testament or new covenant. That there was a new covenant coming, Jesus said, at that meal tonight. The New Testament starts now. Then, last blank under that heading, as the head of the covenant, Jesus' body and blood applies to all those who are in communion with Him. Keyword. It applies to everyone who is in communion with Him. So, we do not save ourselves. And formally speaking, we do not enter directly into covenant relationship with God in the New Testament. Think about it like this. We don't use covenant nearly as much in modern lingo as they would have 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. We have contracts, which have a similar connection, similar feel to some of the things that are in a covenant. The closest thing to a covenant in our culture would be marriage. We make this vow before people to enter into some sort of relationship that is exclusive in the covenant of marriage. Well, a covenant is something that 
has a head. So someone, two parties, enter into covenant on behalf of everyone else. Now, the earliest example of this in Scripture would be what we could call the covenant of works, the covenant of creation, maybe the covenant of Adam, the Adamic covenant, if you know the lingo. Adam entered into covenant relationship with God. And he made decisions for you as the head of the covenant, and you had no say whatsoever in those decisions. I don't care if that feels fair or not. It's just how it is. He made a decision on your behalf to sin. Consequently, all of us, how many of us are sinners? We should be very solid, all of us, we all. And we experience this in life all the time. We exist in a nation that has covenant relations with other nations, such that the boundary, the border of our nation is established. Did you have any input on where that border would be? What if you wanted to change that border? You know what? I don't like that I didn't have any input on this decision, and I'm going to make my own decision about where the border is, and I'm going to build my house right across the border because I can if I want to. What happens? You're not building a house. No. You have no authority to execute the covenant you by law are obligated to participate in. That's how covenants work. In the New Testament, the same is true. The covenant is between God and Jesus. And the only way to participate in the covenant, the new covenant between God and Jesus, is to be in relation to Jesus, to be in communion with him. So we talked last week several times, emphasizing the passages that said in the gospel, we're buried with him in baptism. We're crucified with him as we die to self. We raise with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. If we are in communion with Christ, then we participate in that covenant. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're not becoming one with Christ, but we're celebrating our union with the Lord, which is why oftentimes it is called communion. We come in union with Christ. So that's the institution of the supper. Now let's talk about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now the sacrament, the word sacrament in Baptist life typically has a very negative connotation. That's because of the way the word is used in official Roman Catholicism. But the word sacrament is biblical um, if you spoke Latin. It's maybe, maybe not in English, but it's the Latin word for mystery. And mystery is biblical. And so if we just take that word, bring it into English from Latin, then it's sacrament. And there is a sacramental nature to God. There's a sacramental nature to our relationship with God. There's certainly a sacramental nature to the Lord's Supper. And all we really mean by that is it's mysterious. It's mystical, maybe. It's something about it we don't fully comprehend. We're using the word in that sense. So what's really happening spiritually when we take the Lord's Supper together? So let's fill out the first one. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we enter into spiritual communion with the body that's this group, and with Christ. Now, this is where I want to answer the question we started with, that presence question, where transubstantiation was an answer, consubstantiation was an answer, the physical or spiritual presence of Christ, or no presence at all. We looked at those four different things. Here's the answer I would offer, and it's in Colossians 1.27. This is one you should probably underline and know that this verse is in your Bible. Here's how I would answer that question. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known 
How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Remember, key word, the sacrament, which is Christ in you. Is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? The whole point of the mystery of the gospel is that Christ is present in you. Christ is being formed in you. Where does Christ need to be present in the supper? We're, we're misplaced if we're trying to find Christ in the bread or in the wine or in the atmosphere. We're trying to find Christ in us, formed in us. There's a spiritual confirmation of my soul conformation of my soul into the image of Christ. He dwells in us. We are in him. He is in us. And when we take communion together, we're doing some objective work, some deed, some task where Christ is being formed in us. This is the beauty of a sacrament, of an ordinance commanded by God. There are only three of these in scripture, something we can tangibly do that forms Christ in us. That is God's presence in us. So when we take the supper together, we enter into spiritual communion with the body and with Christ. Now, furthermore, let's let's go back to 1 Corinthians. This is where um, Zach was reading from when he did the Lord's Supper for us a little while ago. And I want to read some of the specific wording given in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, specifically the last verse of the main paragraph, which is verse 26. So 11, 26, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So when we take the supper, we proclaim the power of the crucifixion. Now this is very interesting. Let's go all the way back to the Passover meal. When he passed through the land of Egypt and he killed the firstborn, in all of those homes that did not have the blood, it said he did what to the gods of Egypt? He executed judgment. This was God. We could call it proud. We could call it fitting. We could call it in glory. Passes through the camp and declares his power over the gods of Egypt. He can declare that power over any gods that we create, any gods that we worship, even the false idols that we still hold on to In our lives, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming the power of the crucifixion over all of this. The lingo, again in Colossians, you know that famous passage about Jesus taking the certificate of debt and nailing it to the tree. It ends by saying, and through that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. We are proclaiming every time we take communion together. Every time we take the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming that sin is defeated. We're declaiming that it no longer has power over me, even death. Where is your sting? The victory of the cross is absolute, and we take the meal together. We're not proclaiming generic victory out there. We're proclaiming a victory right here in our lives. All of us sinned before we took communion today. We sinned all week. We gather on Sunday, though, not just forgiveness, but power to conquer sin is being celebrated Every time we take communion together, we think of verses like, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's what we're saying every time we take communion together. Furthermore, though, that verse didn't just say we proclaim the Lord's death. 
It says we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's so much theology packed in that verse. If we proclaim His death until He comes, we're already assuming what key part of the gospel? Resurrection. But not just the resurrection here. We're going all the way to the end. We proclaim His death until He comes back and fixes all of this. We're going to have to take communion until He comes back. We're going to keep sinning. We're going to keep living in this world. We're going to keep falling and needing this tangible reminder of the power of the gospel in our lives. But there's a reminder every time we take it that it will not stay this way. This is where we get to think of Romans 8. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or jump forward to verse 18. For the present sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed because nothing can separate us from the love of God. We see this promise in Christ will be fulfilled. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded this is not the end. We're passing through. My citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And God will make all things yes and amen that he has promised. So this is the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I know it's so easy for us to, and, and I love the way Scott started the service talking about that good, good father song. You know, you ever get sick of a song? You've hear, heard it just so many times. It's just like, I'm, I'm so done with this song. And then something will just boom. You know, there's a, a scare, a fear, that anything we do religiously can become only religious and not have that, that meaning. What we're saying in the Lord's Supper, this is one of the things God has promised to meet us here. And often what's missing is not that we're practicing it wrong, but that we are spiritually distant doing it. Jesus has promised to bless. He's commanded us to do this and share his presence with us. And we have this opportunity every Sunday now to gather and take the supper together and experience the presence of Christ in us. So let's talk about the practice of the Lord's Supper. We'll we'll finish up with this. So the early church observed the Lord's Supper regularly. Really no debate about this. Um, We see in Acts um, 20, um, verse 7, Paul has the church that says, when they were gathered together on the Lord's say to break bread. It's just seamlessly put together as though gathering on Sunday meant gathering to take communion together. It's just seamlessly worded that way. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, where we've been, he even uses the lingo, when you gather to take the Lord's Supper, making it sound like they gathered for this every single Sunday. So they gather to take the supper regularly, No question, but the Bible does not dictate how often we should have the meal. As much as I've wanted to say, hey, have it every Sunday, have it twice a month, have it once a month, have it six times, it just doesn't say. So we, by implication, see, hey, they did this regularly, probably every single Sunday. We know that the early church, after the close of the New Testament, practiced it every Sunday. In fact, they went a step further, and we see very clearly in early church documents that their worship service function something like this. They'd have a public gathering where everyone was welcome to come hear the Word of God. And after they preached the Word of God, then they closed the doors. And if you want to baptize the member of the church, that was your cue to leave. Because now it's only the body of Christ that takes supper, the Lord's Supper, together. Now, I'm not saying we go back to that, but that even that theology is present in some churches. That's called closed communion, where we fence the table, if you know the lingo. That's where that comes from. There's this belief that this is a big deal and even in the passover could you have the passover if you weren't circumcised no you had to come through the covenant first before you could have the supper 
at all. And so that's how many churches pray. And we, to this day, would encourage you. We kind of get you to fence the table yourself. But you should not take the supper unless you are a baptized believer. And that you should do regularly. So I don't think we filled in that whole one. The Bible does not dictate how often we should have the meal, but implies regular observance. But here's what I want to end with. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 11, 17. This is how he starts the paragraph about the Lord's Supper. It says, but in, follow, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because, this is why he's mad, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So what should it be then? For the better. There's a pragmatic benefit to taking the Lord's Supper. It really should be us gathering together and getting some sort of spiritual nourishment from it. We should be excited that we got to have this today. We should be delighted that we got to experience the presence of God among one another today. So frequent practice of the Lord's Supper provides more opportunity for spiritual nourishment. That's where we're going to end at. So we should gather for the better. So we're entering into a season, and this Church of the Square, everything but doctrine is subject to change. Um, practice, you know, ebbs and flows. We, we recognize that. We move chairs. We, in fact, we change the chairs ever so often just so you don't get used to sitting in the same seat. You know, it's just good to practice. But there's, so one thing we're going to do is we're going to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And we're going to try this out, so to speak. I, I feel very strongly that this is more biblical. I can't say it's directly biblical because the Bible doesn't directly command. But I do think it's more biblical to practice this way. And I want us to have more opportunity to experience the spiritual nourishment that comes in the Lord's Supper. So we're going to be continuing to do this every Sunday for the foreseeable future so that we can be excited to gather and know we're going to have communion every single time. Just like baptism today, you know, how awesome would it be to know every single Sunday somebody else was getting baptized? I don't think we would any get upset about that. It'd be like, oh man, praise the Lord, amen. We just want to do the same thing. We gather every time for the three, ideally all three ordinances would happen every time, that we would preach the word, we would take communion, and how amazing would it be that the waters were out every single Sunday. So next week we'll talk about baptism and the symbolism and the ordinance and even sacramental part of baptism. So I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to take the offering, and then that will give me a moment to reposition, and then we're going to close out with baptism this morning.